All right. Um, all right, so this morning, I'm going to uh, give us our big idea, and then what we're going to do is just kind of try to make sense of how we arrive there, and we'll come back to that very idea. So the big idea this morning is that trust in Jesus is the only response that grants us access to the kingdom of God. Trust in Jesus is the only response that grants us access to the kingdom of God. Questions of a way of opening up a new way of thinking about something. In our passage today, it started with a question. A question that Jesus uses to try to open the, the eyes of those who are asking and confused about who he is and what he's about. The question arises because John's disciples are confused. They're confused about Jesus, and their question centers on fasting. Fasting is about temporarily abstaining from food in order to focus our attention on God. It's a subcategory of prayer. Prayer and fasting, they go together. You don't just fast on your own, unless your doctor requires you, but if you're trying to follow Jesus and just not praying and fasting, it's not a good recipe for joy in your life. Fasting was and is done for spiritual purposes. You could fast for a number of different reasons, to express grief over sin and evil, death and injustice in the world, to express repentance and a return to God. You actually see that very example in uh, Paul's life after he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. You could fast to cry out to God for deliverance and protection, uh, to seek God's direction, to worship and enjoy God, and to minister to the needs of others. And fasting was actually one of three practices that religious, pious Jews in the first century believed were vital to pleasing God and being rightly related to God. The other two were prayer and giving to the poor. Hence, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you look at Matthew 6, you'll see that Jesus says, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. He's speaking to these ideas that were floating around at that time. So when John's disciples come to him in verse 14 and say, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not? John's disciples fast, the Pharisees fast, your disciples don't. Which suggests, suggests that you, Jesus, don't require them to fast. In fact, we never see them fasting. What's up with that? You don't require your disciples to avoid sinners or tax collectors. You don't require them to fast. What do you require? You don't make sense. Jesus doesn't fit within the parameters of the religious of his time. And Jesus, his response is basically, that's because I'm bringing something new. Listen to what he says in verses 16 and 17 again. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from him. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will uh, pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The new wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. At, in the first century, a Jewish wedding was a big deal. Imagine one of the biggest celebrations of your life. Think of big hospitality, dancing, rejoicing, lots of fun. The bridegroom's home was this big open house, not just for a day, but for a week. It was this week-long celebration, and it was free to all comers. 
It was paid for by the bridegroom's family. And so if you were poor living in this town where this wedding was happening, this might have been the greatest festival you've ever got to participate in, or the greatest celebration, I should say, not festival. What Jesus is saying is here is like, look, my arrival parallels that, that kind of celebration. At a wedding, do the guests fast? No. Do you attach a patch of garment, a new patch of garment, onto an old, worn-out garment? No, it'll tear. Do you put new wine into old wineskins? No, it'll rip open. The old wineskins cannot hold the new wine. All three of these images highlight an inappropriate response to a new thing. It's not that fasting was wrong or unimportant. Jesus says there's going to be a time where they'll fast. And he's hinting towards the cross when he says the bridegroom is taking from Jesus saying, I am the bridegroom. When the bridegroom leaves, then they will fast. Fasting wasn't the response that God was looking for in light of the arrival of Jesus, Christ, his son. That's why they're not fasting in that moment. It's not what uh, God was looking for. If you want to express uh, your grief and dissatisfaction over sin and evil and injustice and death in the world, if you want to express repentance, if you want to be delivered and protected, if you want his protection to faithfully worship and enjoy him, if you want to minister to the needs of others, then come to Jesus. That's the response that God is looking for. I am the bridegroom, Jesus is saying. Fasting isn't appropriate here. Reception and rejoicing over me is. I am the garment. You can't put me on this old establishment. I am the new wine that can't be held in old wineskins. The old structure can't remain as it is if it's going to receive what I have come to bring. The new wine, when it's put into new wineskins, it functions like it was meant to, and it preserves it. The old wineskins can't do that. It can't hold it. Now, this might sound to you, if you're familiar with the Bible, kind of like a clean break from the Old Testament. But Jesus is not doing that. And he's not saying that. To do that would be to abandon our spiritual and theological history and heritage. Jesus is the Messiah. You can't understand him as Messiah if you abandon and reject the Old Testament. But what Jesus does on the Sermon on the Mount is he says, look, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. Because in him, the Old Testament laws, the promises of God are fulfilled and completed. They've served their purpose, but through God, through God, through Jesus is doing a new thing. I am bringing a new thing, and what I am bringing requires something quite different. So what is this new thing that Jesus is bringing? The new thing that Jesus brings is the kingdom of God on earth. It's the kingdom of God on earth. Israel longed for the kingdom of God to come, just as God had promised in the scriptures. And when it arrived, God would judge all evil. He would destroy Satan and all demons. God would undo the effects of evil and sin in the world. And he would set humanity free from sin, from death. Death would be no more. 
Sickness would no longer exist, and God would dwell and reign with his people. God and humanity would be reunited, heaven and earth restored. Jesus is the bringer of the kingdom of heaven, and he teaches and shows us what it's like. And wherever he goes, there the kingdom of God is there. Jesus then embodies the kingdom of God. And this is why when Jesus begins his ministry, he starts by declaring in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of God or a heaven has come near. George Elad, he writes, the scribes taught and nothing happened. Jesus spoke and demons fled. Storms were stilled, dead were raised, sins were forgiven. His authority in deeds and words was nothing less than the presence of the kingdom of God. And look at what happens in our passage today. Wherever Jesus goes, salvation comes. New health to a woman who was sick and bleeding for 12 years. She's restored. New life to a child who has died, who had this illness. New sight to these two blind men. A new voice to a man who was mute and demonically oppressed. New life, new health, new sight, new voices. I was trying to think of like, what, what must this be like to be in the presence of that, to, to witness that. And I think a close parallel, an image for what that might be like experientially, is like uh, to be present when someone receives their uh, cochlear implant and, and the switch is turned on. Have you guys like seen those videos sometimes on, on YouTube or wherever you might see them of people receiving cochlear implants, being able to hear their, their, their mother or their father's voice for the very first time? Those videos always wreck me, especially when it's like the little kids hearing, uh, hearing for the first time. And it, you know what? It's not actually when the technician turns it on that gets me and they start adjusting the volume asking like, can you hear okay? That's, that's not of what it is. It's the child's response when they hear their mom's voice for the first time, their dad's voice for the very first time. And they nod as they say, can you hear me? And the child nods and smiles and says, yes. And then that smile turns into these tears of joy. And you get, we get to, in that moment, in these videos, it's like this, this veil gets pulled back, and we get to see this intimate moment between the child and their parent, this person who loves them. And you can feel the joy that they have as they hear their voice, the one that they know loves them. But now they're, they're hearing it or receiving it in this different way. They, they hear that the words that they have felt that they know this person loves them so much. The father of that little girl that Jesus pulls out of death was weeping with joy when he saw her alive again. The woman who was sick for years and was healed by Jesus, you can imagine how she must have been rejoicing that what she believed would happen if she just touched his garment happened. It really did happen that the men whose vision was restored by Jesus were dancing. That, the, that one of the first things they see when their vision is restored is their Lord, the Messiah, 
Jesus, God with skin on right before them. The man who was mute, able to sing out in joy. Of course, fasting is not the right response to new hearing, to new sight, to a new voice, to new life. It's a celebration. Can you imagine, the, going back to that example of someone who receives these cochlear implants, how much rejoicing the family has? Of course, there's an adjustment stage as, you, uh, as a child gets used to hearing, but there's a celebration. And the same would apply when Jesus is saying, look, there's a celebration that needs to happen. There's like a wedding that has, is happening and is taking place. Because the forces of evil are now going to be defeated, Jesus is saying. And they are defeated now because of the cross. And the forces of evil are subject to Jesus. There's dancing because Jesus is bringing the kingdom. And because he is, he is forgiving us of the debt of our sin and wiping the stain of our sin out of our lives. There's rejoicing because reconciliation is possible between us and God, between us and between ourselves, within ourselves. Jesus is making that possible with the kingdom of heaven coming on earth. Jesus is beginning to reverse all that is evil and broken in the world. This is undoing human sin and evil, and he, Jesus, is the source of it. He is the bringer of it. No wonder when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's this uniting that is taking place, Jesus is saying. It's not appropriate to fast when this uniting takes place because it's the uniting of heaven and earth in me, he says. This uniting of God and humanity. Jesus brings together heaven and earth in one place. Just as you see back in the Garden of Eden where God and humanity are together. God walks in the garden with them. The spiritual is not the separate thing. It's presented as this thing that's together, that's united in the garden. And this is why some people think that Jesus is referencing Isaiah 62, verse 5, with these three uh, images that he uses. Because in Isaiah 62, it says, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Rejoicing is the theme. Jesus rejoicing over his bride, God over his people. And here's why we need to know this. Our hearts long to be with God in his kingdom. Even if we don't know how to express it, we were created by God, for God, to be with God. And so even when we aren't fully aware of it, we'll chase after other things, but we're, within us is this deep longing more. Our fundamental orientation as human beings is to seek God and the peace, the wholeness, or the shalom, the love, the validation, intimacy, and truth that only God can bring. Even when we chase after other things, we're seeking after what God actually has, even if we're not aware of it. Our longings for God and, um, and this unconscious like kind of seeking out often gets expressed in broken ways, and we pursue unhealthy things. It shows up in so many different ways, and more often than not, for some of us, it's actually like good things that just get twisted and elevated to 
uh, a disordered level, a, a way of prioritizing and putting something above the values list of our lives that it doesn't need to be. One of the ways you can start to discern this in your life is by asking, where am I looking to have my needs met? Where are we looking to have our needs met? In our longing to see something amazing, maybe we run to entertainment. In our desire to stop feeling pain in life, to be free from it, from emotional or mental or physical, we might distract ourselves with tasks, with phones, news, TV. We'll busy ourselves doing something. In our longing to feel companionship and affection, we seek out a significant other. In our longing for a sense of accomplishment, we give ourselves over to our career. In our longing to be satisfied, we seek out more possessions for that next hit of those endorphins. Our longing, in our longing to be validated, accepted, and loved, we might conceal our failures, highlight our strengths, change who we are to fit in. And you'll notice that some of the ones I'm describing, they're actually not inherently bad. They're not like you're pursuing this evil thing. But they highlight this deep-seated desire to be at peace, to be satisfied, to be loved. And that is actually met first and foremost with God. What happens in our life is sometimes we just elevate some of these things way above where they're supposed to be. We were made to be at peace with God and others and ourselves. And that's what Jesus has come to bring. That's what faith in Jesus does. It catapults you into salvation. Faith in Jesus is what lays hold of the kingdom of God. And so what we need to do is to look at these examples. Matthew has presented these nine different examples of Jesus' power, his authority, his ability to heal the newness that he brings. And we've just looked at three here that Natasha shared, uh, read from. And when you look at these nine and these three in particular, you see this common thread that Matthew wants us to understand. One is this, that we need to acknowledge our deep need for help. Look at the people who come to Jesus. The leader of the synagogue and father of this dead girl. The girl, because she had died, would have been ritually unclean. God's people weren't supposed to touch uh, the dead. You were supposed to avoid it. Um, a woman who was sick for, for 12 years, she was ritually unclean as well. The two blind men who come, they would have been outsiders. The mute and demonized man was another outsider. All of these people would have been these um, called like people of the land. They were unprivileged and outcasts. But the common theme is that all of them are aware of their great need. They didn't ignore the pain. They didn't try to distract themselves or self-medicate, trying to fill themselves in in another way. Pain was this speakerphone, a megaphone, announcing to them they needed help. Trouble, illness, suffering, they all have this way of making us aware of our great need for help. And the pain of remaining in that place, when it finally hurts more than the pain of changing, is when you begin to actually reach out and try to get help. And so one, three questions that we can begin to ask ourselves 
that makes this clear in our life is asking, where do you feel most pain in your life? Where do you feel most lost and alone? Where do you struggle to believe that God is in control and that he cares? What is the greatest pain point in your life? Might be a, a family member who isn't walking with Jesus. Not understanding why certain things are taking so long to develop. It might, it might be a certain relationship, your roommate, a friend, your spouse, your child, someone else's suffering, your job, your own health. Where is that pain point? Identify that. Acknowledge your desperate need for help in that place. Don't just try to distract yourself or minimize it. And then secondly, ask Jesus to help you, trusting that he is able. Each one of the people in the story that we read, this passage we read, they all believed that Jesus could meet their needs. They trusted that Jesus was able to address their great need. Listen to them as they direct their words to Jesus in their moment of need. The father, he says, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. The woman who's been sick for 12 years, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. The two blind men cry out, have mercy on us, son of God. And what does Jesus do in response to these requests? He goes into the house where the little girl is, took her by the hand, and she gets up. To the woman who touched his cloak, he says, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And in that moment, she was healed. To the men who asked and begged Jesus to heal them, to give them their sight, he says, Do you believe I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they reply. And then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Notice this connection between their faith in Jesus and contact with him. Their faith catapults them into his presence. They got to come to him. And their faith isn't even perfect. It certainly seems like the father, this was like his last resort. This wasn't the first one he went, that, that the father went to to try to help his daughter. His daughter's already died when he comes to Jesus. The woman has been sick for 12 years. She's like, if I just touch his garment. The men who are blind, they say, they call Jesus son of David. A term that Jesus seems to avoid throughout most of the Gospels, probably because it generally had these political connotations about what kind of king the Messiah would be. But in all cases, they come to him. So even if there's this inadequacy, not fully formed, but directed towards Jesus, Jesus responds to them. Faith in Jesus catapults us into his presence. It brings salvation and healing. And notice there's other people in the stories who do not receive that. That doesn't happen to them. The Pharisees, John's disciples, the professional mourners playing the pipe, the crowds, they see Jesus. They even witness the same miracles. And yet they receive nothing. 
Only those who came with this conviction that Jesus had the power and willingness to help them received what they needed. Acknowledge your desperate need for help. Ask Jesus to help you, trusting that he's able. And third, trust Jesus with the outcome. Trust him with the outcome. Trust him with the timing. There were many other people who lived with different illnesses and troubles in the first century in Palestine who did not experience healing, who did not come into contact with Jesus. What we see as Jesus comes is that there's this inbreaking of the kingdom of God on earth, but there were people who were also sick at this time who wouldn't have experienced this. And we just have to acknowledge that. That there are prayers that you and I have prayed, requests for help that don't get answered in the timing that we want, in the way that we want. How many of us have prayed for someone who had a, a, an illness and we asked for the Lord to heal them and, and he didn't? And they passed. And we live with that grief, not fully understanding it. We have to trust Jesus with the outcome. Romans 8 reminds us of two things. One, it's that we know all things work, that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We can trust God with the outcome of our ask, whether we get them exactly as we ask or not, because we have this confidence that our Father in heaven loves us, he has not abandoned us, and he will use all of life's circumstances for our good to form us into people who look like Jesus. And this is why this last one is so key. If you're like me, your temptation when you're discouraged is actually not to run away and rebel. It's to stop leaning into God. To stop seeking him. To stop asking because it hurts to ask. Withdrawal is a temptation rather than not outright rebellion. You cognitively still believe, but you've stopped living into it. You've stopped asking. You still have pain. You're just not asking him. You still have needs. You're just not asking him. The thing is, inevitably, we go somewhere else. We've got to acknowledge our desperate need. We've got to come to him and ask him, trusting that he can help, but we need to trust him with the outcome. When I was down in California, uh, Glenn Packian, he told the story of this fella. His name was Jean-Francois Gravelet. He was a Frenchman who was professionally known as Charles Blondin. If you recognize that name, it's because he was a tightrope walker and the first to walk across the Niagara Falls. Crossed it uh, 300 times. I think you've got a picture of that, Andrew. The first one. There you go. That's him crossing the Niagara Falls. He actually crossed it apparently 300 times. Now, in 1859, he stood on a bank and called out to the people who were watching him do this, cheering him on, and said, who wants to ride on my back as I cross the Niagara Falls? No one volunteered said, take me. I'm in. I'm in. I'm the one. So here, here's what happens when you keep company with these types of people. He said to his manager, all right, you're going to get on my back. 
and I'm going to take you across. See, that's the difference right there between cognitive belief and living into it. I believe Jesus is able to help me. But I'm not actually living into that. Jesus invites us to believe in him as the savior, as the king, as the healer. So since no one volunteers, Blondin makes his manager, Harry, get on his back. And he says to Harry, you have to get on my back. There's that picture, right? There you go, yeah. He looks very comfortable, doesn't he? Really joyful, full of the joy of life in that moment. He told him, listen, Harry, when we get out on that rope, don't try to balance on your own. If you try to balance on your own, or even along with me, we'll both fall. I am Blondin. I'm the one who knows what we're doing here. You need to just become part of me. When we get out on the rope, there's no more Harry, there's just Blondin. When you go, when I go to the left, you'll, you'll go to the left. When I go to the right, you'll go to the right. When I step, you will, in essence, be stepping. What you and I need to remember is that when we put our trust in Jesus, our faith binds us to him, to Jesus the Savior. Faith binds you and Jesus together. Paul will write in Galatians 2.20, look, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And see, that's the thing about the Gospel of Matthew, about the Bible as a whole. It's not interested in you knowing about Jesus, but what he did, but what he said. It's interested in you knowing him, coming to him coming to him with your troubles, your pain, and trusting that he can heal, that he can bring you life, that he can restore, that he can lead you, that he can bring you through this great chasm that you don't know how you're going to make it through. And so because, for me, because Christ lives in me, I can ask God, even though there's this part of me that's like worried about the outcome. I don't I, I want to have control over the outcome. I just want it to be answered my way. But because Christ is in me, because he is in you, he's at work in us so that we actually do call on him. So that even though we have been discouraged, even though we don't have control over the circumstances, we can come to him and believe that he does love us. That he does care for us, that he loved us and gave himself up for us that he is able to do immeasurably more than I could ask or think or imagine in this life or in the life to come. And so what I want us to do is to take a moment to bring those things that God has made us aware of, our needs, to him, and just to ask him for help. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who brings your kingdom here on earth. And wherever he goes, he brings your kingdom with him. And the signs of it are healing, new life, new sight, 
joy and rejoicing. Comfort. But as we've seen, Lord, you require this response of trust in Jesus. And so, Lord, in trust, in faith, we want to come and acknowledge what these places of pain have need before you. So for all the moments, God, where we've actually ignored it, and you've been trying to make us aware, and we've just kept trying to suppress it, we're sorry, Lord. We don't want to live like that. We ask that you, by your spirit, would enter in to those places of pain and wounding and sadness and show us your great love. Fill us in those places of sadness and pain with your love and your presence, God. But we also want to, in faith, ask you for your help. saying we believe you are able. You're able. So why don't you take a moment right now, Cascades, just in this quiet time to bring these things before him and ask him for help. Jesus, we believe you are able to mend our bodies. We have that authority over all of creation. We have the power and ability to mend our hearts, our minds, our relationships, hearts, minds, and relationships of others. And so we ask you, come Jesus and help us. And give us wisdom. No messed up joy. Jesus, I ask you to bless those who have responded in trust that you can and are willing to help. We surrender the outcome to you, believing that you really do love us, and nothing, none of our hardships, none of it can separate us from your love, and that you can even use all of the hardship in our life to form us into people who look like you do. We surrender it, Lord, and we say thanks for the life that we have. We're going to take 